you're listening to the Down East Mike Podcast, the quirky little podcast from me. And now, your host, Down East Mike. Dee Deedle Dee Deedle Why, good morning, everybody. This is Down East Mike. You are listening to the Down East Mike Podcast, and we come to you quite often from Down East Maine. Well, we do come to you from Down East Maine, but quite often we do the podcast. It's all about syntax and delivery, and we're kings of that, aren't we? Not really. So this is uh, Saturday, September 24th, 2022. We have to get our bearings here. And it was a long work week. We're looking forward to heading down to Boston this weekend. We're going to go see all the museums. And we love to travel, especially by train. Plane when available, but going to Boston, of course, it's not always uh, available. You can't always avail yourself of train travel these days. So we expect to go to Boston to see all the museums, and we've got a, a reservation at a Swank Hotel down right in downtown. We love the city. The city doesn't necessarily love us. It doesn't quite know how to react to the Mena with the bright orange overall. Uh, top shirt and overalls and the clunky boots and the goofy hat and the funny accent. Boston just doesn't get it down east, Mike. But we prevail and we uh, we tip well. We always tip well. That's one of the things that we do. When we're out and about. They know when down east Mike's been eating at their diner. That's if, if, the, if the bill is $10, it's not uncommon to leave a $3 tip. That's 30%. That's quite a bit of money. Uh, if you're new to the podcast, what we do is we look at stuff from today, stuff from the 70s, stuff from previous to that, like go back to the 1870s, 1880s. And we look at it all and we compare it and it all looks pretty much the same. But we like to point that out, and along the way we find some eccentric stories and quirky little things, and we look into that. And our motto is that some of this is whimsy, some of it's true, and the interpretation of it all is entirely up to you. So as we said, this is Saturday, September 24th. If you're just kidding up, let's hit you up with some headlines around the world. As Russian losses mount in the Ukraine... Putin gets more involved in the war strategy. Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, declares a state of emergency for possible major hurricane. And I was thinking about that. The hurricane, you know, it comes right up on Florida, like in just in a couple days. They can go from zero to 60 with a hurricane. It can be offshore. And we look at it from Maine and think, oh, look at that hurricane forming out in the Atlantic, blah. Not to worry, right? But in Florida, that hurricane, it forms, and then it hits them. And Costco was all filled with the shoppers out buying uh, bottled water. They buy plywood at Home Depot. That'll drive up the price of plywood. So hurricane coming towards Florida. They also have one hit in Nova Scotia, but they're used to it up there. Uh, Zelensky calls in Ukrainians in occupied territory to resist Russian draft. Uh, as we mentioned, Hurricane Fiona, Canada braces for historic extreme event. I saw pictures of them putting sandbags outside of 
their power facility in uh, up near Halifax. Good luck with that. There's a lot of wind coming their way. U.S. sending dangerous signals on Taiwan, China tells Blinken. Blinken's kind of a funny name, isn't it? Wink and Blinken and nod. Wall Street ahead. Investors wonder when vicious sell-off in U.S. stocks will end. Well, that'll end when people start buying them again. World Bank head says he's not a climate denier and he won't quit. I wonder what that's all about. Iran protests. The U.S. is easing internet curbs for Iranians. And nothing else there. It's really cheerful. Uh, train strikes Colorado police cruiser with road rage suspect inside. So they had arrested a road rage uh, suspect in in Colorado. And then the uh, police stopped on the train tracks to um, process her and put, and put her in cuffs in the back of the cruiser. Not the best place to park. And then the, the train came through, as they inevitably do, and hit her. And she survived. Uh, she's got broken ribs and lost a few teeth. And there'll be a big lawsuit, I'm sure. Okay, that's the uh, international headlines. We'll see if there's anything of note here in Maine, which is what we'd like to focus on. It's so wonderful. Statewide program develops small business resources in English. French, and Somali. Health, Runch, health Reach Community Health Centers welcome Dr. Patrice Thibodeau. That's really important information for you to know. Uh, we have the stocks. Somebody died due to a sedative. Not much local news. It, it's hard to find good main local news. Oh, Aerospace Research Center will build rockets at the Presque Isle Airport. That's coming up. That's exciting. Presque Isle Airport. Uh, right whale dragging fishing gear spotted near Nantucket. Now, how do they know that right whale didn't deliberately, you know, bite onto that fishing gear just to play with it? I'm making light of it, but they don't really don't know, do they? Any other main news? Uh, York told, no, that's old news. Uh, police make arrest in Old Port shooting that seriously injured two people. That was right down where Down East Mike hangs out in Portland, too. It's pretty scary. Portland's becoming a bit of a shooting gallery. Well, that's the news. Uh, that's all the, anything that's uh, really important locally and internationally. Let's look at today's podcast. In today's episode, we have the main pilot getting a shock in 1976. Prime Minister Trudeau visits in 1976. Didn't know the Trudeaus were still around then, did you? A shipwrecked sailor dives for cheese. And Down East Mike goes off the rails. Maine's glowing moss. Those are our stories for today. The word of the day, we're giving the word of the day off. We overloaded on words earlier this week. And we just can't handle or process any more new words at this time. Happy birthdays today to Harold in Greenville, Maine. Harold will be 63 years old today. And he likes to tell the story about the time that he met a famous actress on Congress Street in Portland. And she was looking for directions to Betsy's Diner 
and he sent her to DeMillo's, and that Harold's a practical joker, he's a funny guy. Happy birthday to Zimir of Berwick. Zimir turns 32 years old. He's been Ubering for some time, and we don't have much else on Zimir, but happy birthday nonetheless to you, Zimir. On this day in 1976, uh, there was a Ford and Carter debate. They traded charges on jobs and tax cuts. Ford and Carter, President Ford and Jimmy Carter met in their leadoff campaign debate Thursday night, and the president was accusing his rival of failing to produce specific remedies for unemployment and Carter charging that Ford has changed his tune on tax cuts. We have debate season coming up soon here in Maine, too. The Maine pilot survived a shock of 125,000 volts. This was uh, around this time in, in 1976. It was uh, Rick Aiken of Orrington, a 40-year-old commercial pilot and jazz musician, was flying a model airplane on the Clueyville Road in Eddington, when the steel wire attached to the plane struck high-voltage lines carrying 125,000 volts of electricity. A shock similar but stronger than any lightning bolt and as quick as a snap of his fingers ran down the steel wire and in less than a second tore through Aiken's body, leaving a burning path of flesh behind it. What a nice way to word that. The electrical charge ignited the rubber band of his undershorts, melting the elastic and scorching his waist and back before plunging earthward. Are we all following the trajectory of this shock? In a flash, Aiken's socks were nearly reduced to ashes as the two mighty surges of electricity raced down his legs, searing holes through the top of his feet and out through the soles of his shoes. Finally earthed, we're following the path of this shock here. Finally, Earth, the powerful electrical charge browned out a five-foot circle of freshly pruned grass, uh, freshly pruned grass on the lawn of Marshall Woodward. And so this is on Marshall Woodward's lawn that Aiken is getting his shock as he flew his model airplane. It threw him solidly to the ground where he lay with no pulse, or heartbeat. Now Aiken could have died had it not been for his fiancée Anna Gray of Eddington and she's a nurse or was a nurse's aide at Bangor Mental Health Institute who was and she was watching this uh, episode. She flew ran to his side and began an external heart massage before rushing him to the Eastern Maine Medical Center in Bangor. Moments before, Corey Gray, her son, had been holding Aiken's right hand as he flew the plane, but Aiken, feeling what he thought was static electricity building along the line, told the youngster to get out of the way while he performed a loop with the gasoline-powered 36-inch winged plane. Aiken was resting comfortably in the Bangor Hospital Thursday when he called a reporter to tell him about the bizarre occurrence that had left him with first, second, and third degree burns on his arms, legs, waist, and feet. Others are still amazed that Aiken survived. His supervisor um, for the Bangor, 
No, Tom Cox, a supervisor for the Bangor Electric Company uh, line crew, and Mrs. Gray's brother had told Aiken he knew of no one who had taken so much electricity and survived. Earl Webster, executive vice president of Bangor Hydro, said that Aiken was very, very fortunate. He's still living. He apparently only brushed the line. If the control line had become tied around the power line, he would be in a pine box today. This is a cheerful story, actually. Normally, 240 volts is enough to kill anyone. Uh, the hydro executive said 3,000 volts is enough to ignite 800 lights for the average home. And then they go on, they compare it to electrical execution, blah, blah. Uh, everyone thought I was dead, Aiken told the news. He was, uh, Anna Gray said he was thrown very hard to the ground. Sparks flew and made an ungodly sound. I thought he was dead. The whole top of his body was singed. The electrical bolt cut through his shoes, making tiny pinholes. The grass was all dead around him. And she went on, and I opened his mouth, urged him to breathe. It didn't take very long, although it seemed like eternity. He's a lucky person. He had just switched a control stick to his right hand. Had he been holding it, his left hand next to his heart, he would have had it. Isn't that something? Model airplane. So dangerous. Uh, Aiken's a professional jazz drummer with the U.S. Trio. Do you know that band? I don't. His hobby, flying model planes, is something that 10-year-old Corey Gray exalts in, too. Aiken is looking forward to flying the model plane again, but this time, far away from the power lines, I feel foolish. The wording on the control handle warns the operator not to fly the plane close to power lines, and it taught me a lesson. His fiance echoed similar sentiments. Well, if you were out looking for fun uh, this time, 1976, the platters and Killarney's. Let's see. Enjoy dinner and the platters. At, you know, you receive a free ticket to the platters with center front seats if you order from a selected menu at Killarney's. That was at the Holiday Inn in Bangor. At the Bounty Tavern, Prism was playing, and they were deemed electrifying and exciting. The Bounty Tavern. The Nashville Kitty Cats, Monday through Saturday, and Woody Woodman every Sunday at the Down Under, the New Plaza Motel, Wilson Street in Brewer. Gator was playing at the Lincoln Cinema, now through Monday. And next week was coming Ode to Billy Joel. Joel. Ode to Billy Joel. Danny Harper was at the Tidewater. There was a Stanley Kubrick Film Festival. And... John Wayne and Laura Bacall were in The Shootist. That was a short story, I think, that they made into a movie. I don't think it was a full novel. 2001 A Space Odyssey was playing, Clockwork Orange, and that was at the Kubrick Festival. Um, and what else? Do, oh, Roger Moore and Stacy Keach were in Street People. There's a couple of stiffs, huh? Les Kurtz, folk singer. Played with Pete Seeger in New York, and he's at the Wellington Hotel. That's that audience of one when you go do that one. At Radio Shack, you could buy a CB radio. And who needs Brand X when realistic is such a steal? $59.95, a realistic Mini 23 mobile two-way radio. Their best-selling realistic TRC-52 is ninety nine ninety five. That's a lot of money, nineteen seventy six. And then they had a realistic phone-type mobile CB radio for one thirty nine. 
That was CBN heyday, wasn't it? On this day, 1976, Prime Minister Trudeau, must have been the senior, right? Trudeau mania is heard so little these days that many wonder if Canada's Prime Minister was ever so exalted as some remember in 1968 when he took the reins of the Liberal Party. I remember that. I was around for that. We took a little license with this. It's not actually Maine, but it's Edmonston, right, uh, New Brunswick, right over the border. Uh, he's expected in Edmonston on Friday during a five-day tour of the Maritime Provinces. It's been reported already that his arrival at Prince Edward Island was less than lukewarm. So that's a pretty cold welcome, right? On Wednesday, loyal supporters at St. John, New Brunswick received him well, but as many union members outside the hotel demonstrated against the once staunch head of Canada, Canadian politics. Why the change? Because in 1975, wage and price controls were laid upon Canada. Controls were the Conservative Party's platform in 1974, and Trudeau had promised no wage and price controls to his countrymen, but they did it anyway. Prime Minister Trudeau. That was before they met Castro, I think. Uh... All right, so we won't go much more on that story, but we do have a story about the shipwrecked sailor diving for cheese, and this is out of Machias. Three county men returned to their homes Wednesday after spending two nights and one day shipwrecked on Scudic Island near the Scudic Point area of Acadia National Park. It's actually like the most beautiful part of that park, but you got to drive to get there. One of the three luckless mariners, I wouldn't call them luckless, Jeffrey Wright of Machiasport, described the island uh, to the Bangor Daily News for the instruction and possible benefit of future voyagers who try to cross Frenchman Bay in small craft. Scudic Island is the most inhospitable island I was ever marooned on, Wright said. No food or water and dead gulls and other birds littering the beach. Wright, his brother Christopher Wright, you could call them the Wright brothers, and Francis Albers of Harrington All in their mid-twenties had set out on Monday from Southwest Harbor to sail a 28-foot gaff-rigged sloop to Cutler Harbor. At nightfall on Monday, they had anchored off the southeast shore of Scudic Island after crossing Frenchman Bay, and they'd used a canoe to land off Scudic Island to spend the night. Now they're off to a good start here, right? They've anchored, they've got their canoe, it's in the water. At 4 a.m. on Tuesday, uh, we get to that wreck part here. Let's get to the actual shipwreck part. At 4 a.m. on Tuesday, strong winds had come up and had caused the boat's anchor line to chafe on an underwater ledge in part, allowing the boat to go adrift. Albers and Christopher Wright, the owner of the sailboat, jumped in the canoe, paddled to the sloop, and tried to raise sail, but were too late. The boat struck the rocky shore of the island, causing the two men to leap to the rocks and wade ashore across razor-like barnacles, which cut their bare feet. The canoe struck a rock and was torn open. Waiting on shore was Jeffrey Wright who told the news, We made a fire out of pieces of other shipwrecked boats and watched our boat pound to pieces on the rocks. And then Jeffrey Wright dove down among the wrecked timbers of his brother's sailboat after daylight, and he rescued a box of cheese. The cheese, along with three beers and the juice from a pickle bottle, 
formed the trio's entire diet while they were unwilling guests of the National Park Service on Skudik Island. All day Tuesday the fog was fogged in and not until Wednesday were they able to attract the attention of a fisherman and hitchhike to shore in a lobster boat. The fisherman's name apparently did not register with Jeffrey Wright, but he recalled that the man landed the shipwrecked trio at Wansqueak Harbor and took them to the nearby Winter Harbor Navy base. Wright expressed deep gratitude for the boat ride to shore and the breakfast, which the three Down East men enjoyed at the Navy base. Bozen's mate, Wayne Chance, drove the men to Ellsworth after breakfast. Christopher Wright, who had bought the sailboat last Monday at Southwest Harbor for $1,000, had intended to moor it in Cutler Harbor and live aboard it. His former home, a yurt which he had built in Machiasport, had burned down earlier this year, as yurts inevitably do. The wrecked sailboat was described by Jeffrey Wright as an apt boat built in 1911, cedar over oak with fiberglass hull in excellent condition. The boat also had a small auxiliary engine, but the engine was not working on Monday when the three Down East Mariners left Southwest Harbor to cross Frenchman Bay. Shipwreck, diving for cheese, a dashed canoe and boat on the rocks. What a romantic adventure that must have been. At Kmart 1976, you could buy four uh, candy bars for four cents each. A regular 10 cents. And you got a Hershey's bar, a Mr. Good bar, a Crackle bar. Four cents it came out. With the coupon, though. You had to have the coupon. Cookie treats. Four packages for 88 cents. I think this is where it started for all of us getting kind of big. Uh, plenty pack gum. Nine cents it came out. Uh, that was plenty pack. Many different flavors. And transistor batteries, pen light, 22 cents for a card with a coupon. You know those batteries didn't last long. Girls' winter jacket was four bucks. Facial tissue, six boxes for a dollar. Black dress Oxford shoes, four dollars and 91 cents, three days only. An oil filter was $1.96. That's not very cheap. That's what you pay today. Listerine was 78 cents and Scotch Guard, $1.68. Other news that you probably need to know to make your life fulfilling. Vandals damaged the fence at Athens. Substantial damage done to the fence at Athens Town Hall or Town Dump on Thursday. The damages were discovered at 8 a.m. by a local resident. The deputy sheriff, Almond Foss, was called. He was followed to the scene by first selectman Gordon Linkletter and state trooper Charles Love. It was reported that the gate post was badly dented and pulled out of place. Other areas of the fence also had been bent out of place. The cost of repairs, which will have to be assumed by the towns, had not been determined. The fence, at a cost of $400, had been erected in front of the dump this past summer after it had been approved during the annual town meeting. Dump hours were restricted to three days a week. Because no trash was at the site of the broken fence, Linkletter believes it to be more an act of vandalism than a rebellion against the dump hours and regulations. It looked like they hooked a car or pickup truck to the gate and fence and tried to pull it away. Linkletter expressed dismay at the act of vandalism. It's too bad. 
things had been running so smoothly down there and the dump had never looked better. I'd really appreciate it if people would keep a watch on it. Uh, TIA's man on the scene of Bangor sweated it out with the passengers. The Mike Stott, the station manager for Trouse International Airlines, is a man with responsibility heaped on his shoulders. One of the TIA jets um, landed at uh, Bangor International Airport and it had some problems uh, this day in 1976. He was probably the first one upset, this, this uh, Mike Stott guy, when the DC-10 with 376 passengers landed with mechanical problems. Flight engineers and Bangor International Airport crews set about writing the problem and the delay was announced to the passengers. As a matter of course, Stott said, the passengers on all transit airports are advised not to leave the terminal due to normal transit times. So they found the problem at 9 a.m., uh, 9 p.m., sorry, and then following the plane's touchdown um, at 6, they find the issue at 9, and then they were told it, be, it would be fixed by 11.30. And at that time, the passengers were given a light snack with a beverage. Passengers were kept abreast of all information that we had at the time. And then at 11.30, they're told the crews need more time to fix the problem, and it should be fixed by 12.30 uh, in the morning. That time came, and then they found that there was a problem with the thrust reverse mechanism. So at this time, the hotel space was approved by the duty officer in Oakland, California, but by then it was discovered there were not enough rooms available in the Bangor area to hold 376 passengers. There were only rooms for 125. Well, today we know what they'd do with them, right? They'd pack them in. So in the meantime, they were given a cold plate full meal uh, at 11.30 p.m. Then at 3.30 in the morning, they were fed a hot breakfast from McDonald's. And all in all, they spent $1,000 for food on that marooned plane. What would it have been like to be on that plane all night eating a cold plate dinner and the McDonald's for breakfast? Eventually they took off, but that's a big plane and a big to-do in Bangor this day. We also got off the rails a little bit. We found uh, right around this time the GE100, General Electric's all-electric car. It was an experimental four-passenger vehicle the idea was it would use off-the-shelf components, already uh, pre-existing things that they could swap out easier, and they just move them in. It looks a little bit like a Prius, if you haven't seen it. The GE100. The prototype cost 250000 to create, and they had designed it to be mass-produced. They thought it would sell for about $6,000 if 100000 were manufactured, which was comparable to the cost of a new internal combustion car in 1978. Um, the range was less than the range of a typical gas engine. It was enough for in-town trips. 18 6-volt lead-acid batteries tucked under the chassis on a sliding carriage provided power for 100 miles of highway driving or uh, 45 miles in, a, in the city. So those batteries uh, were made for GE's electric vehicle division out of Virginia. 
and they were derived from deep discharge batteries that were used commercially to power golf carts and forklift trucks, and they could be recharged in six to eight hours by plugging them into a 220-volt uh, outlet. The vehicle, as we noted, had a range of about 75 miles at 40 miles per hour, a cruising speed of 55, passing speed of up to 60. The 0 to 30 was 9 seconds, not super fast. The, they also called it the Centennial Electric. It was one of the only of a handful of electric cars that have been designed from scratch. Many existing electrics are modifications of gas-powered compacts or essentially glorified golf carts. This is borderline glorified golf cart. Golf cart. Uh, no grill. There's no radiator to cool. Low center of gravity because it had 1,200 pounds of batteries slung on a movable trolley beneath the vehicle. The 24-horsepower DC series traction motor is fitted at an angle because the geometry of the drivetrain is simpler. So some of the features, this would have been a treat to, to ride in. The seating arrangement for rear seat passengers to keep the car low to reduce air drag and to permit easier entry and exiting the seats face to the rear and are entered through a hatchback type rear door. The front doors open out and forward on hinged links, one pivoted beneath the driver's seat, the other hinged at the tow board. As a result, the doors could be opened fully even when the Centennial Electric was parked within 14 inches of an obstacle. One of the prime considerations of the vehicle's design was to duplicate the feel of a conventional car. For, exist, for example, the front seating arrangement, instrument panel, and floor-mounted automatic shift lever are similar to those in conventional autos. Dials on the instrument panels show the amount of energy stored in the battery, similar to a fuel gauge, and they measure the electric current lights showing whether the power is on, the battery's charging lights are on high beam, or if there's a brake failure. That would be bad news. The shift lever indicates neutral park forward and reverse. Including the batteries that weighed about 3,200 pounds, it's 54 inches high, 160 inches long, 66 inches wide, wheelbase 92 inches, ground clearance was 6 inches, probably didn't do too well in the snow, Auxiliary equipment included a gasoline-type heater, AM, FM, and CB radio, windshield wipers, defrosters, fans, headlights, other accessories operating off a standard 12-volt battery, which is connected to an onboard battery charger. That's a lot to get your head around. We found an ad of interest at this time, 1947 Life magazine. It was from Bell Telephone System. Millions of calls are made to order every hour. Every telephone call is made to order on the spot. This is not a mass production industry. There's no way to manufacture a lot of telephone calls in advance and store them for future need. Of course, we know that's not true. Your call may be across the street. The next may be across the country. It may be the middle of the day or the middle of the night. But whenever you call and whoever you call, the telephone company must be ready. All about Bell Telephone. Millions of other people calling every hour. I think the quality was better then. Also from General Electric, we found an ad for a General Electric Deluxe Portable Radio 1947. It renews its power over and over again. 
Yes, there's lots more fun because you can recharge this GE portable battery anywhere there's an AC outlet or from your car battery. So you can use it as freely as your radio at home. You can play it on the house current too, like any table set. Just look at these amazing features. Push button controls to help bring in U.S. and foreign stations galore. Famous GE Natural color tone, built-in charger, rugged military construction, and die-cast aluminum case that's light as can be. See and hear it today at your General Electric radio dealers. And you'd like to know behind the scenes, was this something that came out a result of the military and they you know, had leftover components? Or how, you know, how did that all come about? Uh, we had an ad for Vaseline Hair Tonic. Hair looks better. Scalp feels better when you check dry scalp. It's just as easy to check dry scalp with Vaseline Hair Tonic. Just a few drops a day make the difference. It supplements natural scalp oils and leaves your hair natural looking and your scalp feeling like a million. And it's got a guy, he's adjusting his tie and his hair is very, very shiny and greasy. We found an ad, a little story here in the Life magazine, 1947 for the Astrodome train. It's a new train that was coming out then. Uh, each car was 85 feet long. It could carry 216 passengers. Uh, that was, the, I'm sorry, the diner and chair car are each 85 feet long. The They seat 24 and extend two, the Astrodome, which is the top part, is 30 feet long. It seats 24 and extends two feet above the car roof level. Uh, and it's got a Sway-proof ride, four levels, and space for a children's playroom. They wanted to develop this. General Motors was going to develop this uh, train. One of the features of it was a radio telephone, which enabled passengers to call home from a speeding train. And in the demonstration, they have guests calling the Queen Elizabeth at sea and talking with the captain. Because when you're on a train in Nebraska, you want to call the Queen Elizabeth and talk with the captain. Orange Crush, we found an ad for Orange Crush, a fruit-flavored uh, beverage, filtered water, juice of tree-ripened Valencia oranges, flavor of orange peel, citric acid from orange juice, sugar syrup, that's Orange Crush fruit-flavored drink. And it's got a little Orange Crush dispenser and a lever, and then it looks like one of those paper cups that they were going to dump it into. We found a story about Babe Didrikson. Did you know her? She was an athlete. The world's most amazing athlete has learned to wear nylons and cook for her huge husband. We'll go through this story and see if you can identify the things that might not be politically correct today. Mildred Babe Didrikson, whose middle name really is Babe, was once designated by Grantland Rice as the athletic phenomenon of all time, man or woman. Certainly no athlete, man or woman, ever approached Miss Didrikson's versatility. Gertrude Erdorell, the first woman to swim the English Channel, was often called the greatest feminine athlete who ever lived, but this seems a singularly ill-considered judgment. 
All Miss Edrill could do was swim. She never boxed, wrestled, played football, hit three home runs in one baseball game, or designed a sport dress that won first prize at the Texas State Fair. Not even Jesse Owens broke four world records and won Olympiad or played the harmonica for money. When the bay was seven, she became something of an expert on the harmonica and for three years did a weekly broadcast in Texas. After the 1932 Olympics, she was supposed to get $3,500 a week for singing and playing the harmonica. She lasted one week and quit. She was too much of an outdoor girl to stand four shows a day. The babe attributes her interest and proficiency in sports to her father. He saw that the seven little Didricksons ate plenty of oatmeal, took a laxative once a week, and exercised continuously. There's a story around Port Arthur, Texas, that neighbors put in hedges just, just to watch the Didrickson kids jump them. Yet the babe resents being called a natural athlete and an automatic champion. Such cliches do not recognize her grit and perseverance. When she started golfing in earnest 13 years ago, she will celebrate her 34th birthday on June 26. She hit as many as 1,000 balls in one afternoon playing until her hands were so sore they had to be taped. When she took a brief fling at tennis, she became so absorbed in the sport that her husband complained he never got to see her. Her husband is George Zaharias, a Denver wrestling promoter. He is a 300-pound giant with hair-fringed cauliflower ears. The ears are souvenirs of his own wrestling days when he was billed as the Crying Creek, the Crying Greek from Cripple Creek. He and the babe met in 1938 when a publicity man arranged for them to play a golf threesome with a minister. They had a date that night and frequently thereafter, but they never found time to get married until Zaharias issued an ultimatum one day in St. Louis. We're going to get married this Friday, or we're going to call the whole thing off. They got married on Friday, and they now have a home in one of Denver's most fashionable suburbs, where they sleep in a specially built bed eight feet square. The big bed was Babe's idea. She has a tender affection for her hulking husband, and made him retire from wrestling because she worried about him. After winning the British Golf Championship, she wailed, Never in nine years have I been away from George this long. But then Babe always was a lonely girl. She never was a pretty one. Her lips were too, too thin. Her Adam's apple was too big. She had a boy's body, straight, supple, and tough as a buggy whip. She shingled her hair in a boyish bob and rarely bothered to comb it. In her boxing and running days, she walked up to a competitor and said, I'm going to lick you. Then she did. She hated other girls and lived only to beat them. Some writers have tried to explain her athletic conquests in rather obvious psychological terms. If she could not beat other women at sex appeal, she'd beat them at everything else. All that has changed now. Today, Mildred Zaharias, Zaharias likes to perch a silly hat on her head, dress up in nylon stockings she once scorned, patronize the hairdresser, and wear satins. She even does her own housework without servants and is a good cook with the Norwegian dishes learned from her mother and the Greek dishes she learned from her husband. A few years ago, a sports writer who had known the old babe Didrikson stood on a golf course grinning at the new Mildred Zaharias. She was applying lipstick and rouge from a dainty compact. She grinned right back at him and said, Yeah, 
and I got silk on underneath, and I like it. That was from Gene Farmer, Life Magazine, 1947. A little more on Babe Didrikson, if you didn't know her. Uh, born 1911, died 1956. Uh, she was an American athlete who excelled in golf, basketball, baseball, and track and field. She won two gold medals in track and field at the 1932 Summer Olympics. And she turned to professional golf. She won 10 LPGA major championships. She's widely regarded is one of the greatest athletes of all time. All right, rounding up the uh, somewhat lengthy podcast today. Um, Maine's Glowing Moss, Schistostega pinata. And the, there, it's a, a moss that grows in caves, also known as Goblin's Gold. There are caves where ethereal, ethereal golden green lights glow on the ground like emeralds. These light displays are from a luminous moss, Shistatega pinata, known as Goblin's Gold, a name that conjures up legends of cave-dwelling creatures. But in daylight, the magical green glow vanishes. This moss is superbly adapted to life in the dark. When its spores germinate, they grow filaments that fan out, scavenging for any faint light they can find. Cells on the surface of the moss are covered with tiny lenses that focus any dim light deep down into the bottom of the cells where chloroplasts move around to harvest any pinpricks of light. The fluorescent green glow of the moss comes from the chloroplasts as they absorb most of the light but reflect green light, while some of the light focused inside the cell is also reflected out. It can grow into huge colonies in the dark and cover cave floors in a luminous green light. And by growing in dark places, it gains a, a huge advantage by avoiding competition with other plants that cannot survive in such din- dingy light. So Goblin's Gold Schistotega, Haplio lipidius moss. It's, it's rare in Maine. It, it only is found in like three or four places, and I, I think it's actually undisclosed because... Um, they're worried that collectors will, you know, scrape it and try to save it. So quite rare in Maine in caves. I guess you would know it when you saw it in the low light condition. You'd seen that, that greenish uh, gold glow. We'll take a quick look at the forecast for today. Of course, we get the, the hurricane offshore again. It's this time of year. Uh, for today, Saturday, September 24th, it uh, be sunny with a high near 64. Northwest wind around 15 miles per hour. However, with that hurricane offshore, be gusting as high as 30. And for tonight, clear with a low around 46. And Sunday, mostly sunny with a high near 67. Well, that is our Down East Mike podcast for today. I hope you and your loved ones enjoy a day that is full of grace, love, and kindness. And until next time, this is Downey Spike saying, we'll see ya. I'm just a stone Standing free And I can see 
all the people looking at me. I'm just a stone. Thank mm-hmm. you.